So I'm really excited to have this guest on in particular for a variety of reasons. In our Stories of Change series, we have heard from all sorts of guests, people who have completely pivoted their careers to a completely different discipline and become business owners for the first time. We have heard from people who have maintained their expertise space and have gone to a different mode of delivery and owning their own business. We've also heard from people who have maintained their full-time job and added a really fulfilling side hustle or side gig to their plate that has pushed them outside of their comfort zone. And we've also heard from a serial entrepreneur who not only has gone through major pivots throughout his career by design, but also has spent some time supporting his partner through these changes. Hello, I'm Nassim, and welcome to Becoming My Stronger Me, a podcast designed to help you become stronger in mind, body, and heart. Up until a few years ago, my journey was pretty linear, following a traditional path. And then, in a perfect storm of circumstances, I pivoted to pursue a more fulfilling and meaningful life. Join me as I share what I've learned about myself that's helped me to become my stronger me. Today, we have someone who's going to share their story of change from the point of view of the journey leveraging all of their skills and having a varied skill set that gets honed each time they make a major life pivot. And so I'm so excited to have Dr. Reza Alavi on with us today. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be part of the program. Look forward to it. So I can't possibly do your bio or your journey justice. So if you could just take a few moments and share with us your educational background, your journey, uh, career-wise, or even personally, whatever you're comfortable sharing, I know my listeners and I would love to hear it. Well, I, I grew up in Philadelphia. Both my parents were physicians, and between the two of them, they took care of the underserved for a combined 80 years. So early on, I wanted to do something in large-scale health. I, I wasn't really sure what that meant. Uh, so I spent about 30 years in school uh, residency, postdoc, a couple of master's degrees along the way, and wanted to come out and make an applied difference in the world. So early on, kind of felt my way around. There wasn't an early career roadmap for someone who wants to improve healthcare for large populations per se. So I've done research, I've done policy, uh, done clinical trial design, but eventually found my niche in population health. So I was trying to improve care in the between hospitals and, and outpatient programs and do real care transformation eventually led to some consulting work, how to scale programs, how to bring in enterprise partners and businesses. I spent another year as an executive at a, a company to provide high acuity care in the home. And then come Last year, this time, I started to uh, put up my own shingle and went on my own. So it's really interesting because you're coming out of an educational space that is very linear. It's a path that millions of people have been on, you know, from undergrad into medical school, into residency, and then many people then go on for fellowship or any sort of specialty. And so you're coming out of this very linear path. When did you know in that very linear path that the rest of your path wasn't going to be linear, or maybe you didn't know at all? I think for me, it was early on. I just didn't know what the future held. You know, I used to joke around that, 
you know, I'm a little sailboat. I put up my sail and see which way the wind's blowing and where there's value that I can I can provide. But even during early years in my fellowship, I went to my fellowship director and said, look, I know this fellowship is created for people who want to be professors in medicine. I, I don't want to do it. I don't want to be in academia. What are all the other paths? And he was a uh, amazing gentleman, Fred Brancati, who sent me to talk to about a half a dozen people in industry and government and private foundations and so on to give me a lay of the land of what does it look like if you're not doing 100% clinical care and, and you're not in academia? Like, what are all the other uh, options that people put in that other uh, bucket? So, I love that you brought up Dr. Brancati in this conversation because it is an incredible example of what a mentor can do, not only in guiding the conversations, but truly being selfless because at the end of the day, you were his student and it would have been very easy to persuade or try to persuade and maybe even get in the way of you expanding out beyond what he needed you to do. But instead, he did quite the opposite. He embraced where you were going and then connected you with the resources to explore what that looks like. So if you could take a moment and talk about what that's like, either finding a mentor like that, but also really guiding and being present in those conversations to kind of soak up as much as you can from them. I think when you're younger, when you're a, maybe a first year fellow or resident or student, you're not always conscious about these things, but the mentor-mentee relationship is one of the most amazing things that some places offer. You need someone who both you can get along with and connect with and so on, but then also someone who's looking to actually mentor you as opposed to, you know, have some benefit to them. Uh, so oftentimes it's people who are slightly more seasoned. They have a little bit more of a mindset of giving back. So a lot of people have the bandwidth. They, they want to kind of ring it on their resume that I've also done this, but to be at a place in your career that you want to really give back and make a difference to the next generation. And I was quite blessed that, that the guy whose office was two doors down from mine was this amazing human being who, who's since passed away. So you've shared that early on as we're young, we may not truly recognize the value of mentorship. And so where you were in time with your fellowship, you know, you're not super young in an undergrad uh, mental space or capacity or even a grad school or a medical school mindset, but instead you're on a fellowship path. And in that path, you're not only looking to gain the skills and knowledge and expertise to propel you forward, but you're also thinking about the practicalities of life of making an income and supporting a family and all the things that come with uh, more adulthood kinds of decisions and mindsets. As you're putting up your sail, so to speak, and letting the wind blow wherever it goes, how does that jive with a more adulthood mindset where society is really designed and pressuring us to know what we want to do and go after the jobs that give us the wages that we want for the lifestyle we want, as opposed to knowing that no matter where the wind blows, I'm going to be successful. I think it takes uh, two or three different things. One's a, uh, 
proponent to take risk, a willingness to take risk. I, I've always been someone who enjoyed some amount of risk-taking behavior in my, my social life, to professional life, to uh, charitable organizations that we did things, etc. Right. Um, the other is having a supportive system. You know, at the time. Uh, my partner had a very steady job, ha- provided health insurance, uh, and, and so on. And, and the last piece is having some confidence that the skills and knowledge and training that you've had along the way is of value to someone. Maybe it's not easy for me to fully understand who that someone is uh, as I'm looking for jobs or talking to people, but you look at 30 years of investment from age five to 35 that has gone into this, even if it's not initially obvious, there is plenty of value that you're bringing to unusual stakeholders. So let's unpack that a little bit, because I think some of us, especially those of us who have gotten undergrad degrees or graduate degrees or postgraduate degrees, will oftentimes define our knowledge based on the content expertise in which we were trained. And some of what you're talking about goes beyond that, not to say that that's not important, that's absolutely important, but how do you reflect on your other skills and value added that you bring into the world and into the professional space? What is that process for you to reflect and grow those skills? I think it's this dynamic between being broad versus deep. I've always had a vast array of interests over time, a vast array of skill sets, and think about how to connect the dots. So even early on when I was trying to do something in in, uh, population health and food choice, I was looking to take a business-oriented way of looking at price incentives at supermarkets and less, you know, individual food for patients through a medical perspective. So trying to bring out my business background, with industry interest and looking to have, you know, population health interventions uh, and so on. So going forward, right now that I've had five or six different jobs along the way, there's not just the skill sets, but there's also the people, right? You've, you've met hundreds of people along the way that it's not just networking. It's people that you've met. You understand the type of work that they do, the type of value they create what are their friction points and being able to connect folks uh, in something that is productive is, is over time becomes a value add. You've actually said so much there that I'd like to unpack maybe in sections. One of the things that you mentioned and the concepts you've mentioned is broad versus deep, whether that be in skill set uh, or in content knowledge and expertise or in passions. What is the right balance of going broad and maybe not as deep or spending the time and energy and resources of going deep, but maybe not being as broad? Do you have a sense of what an ideal balance might look like? To be honest, I I don't think there is an ideal balance. what, What you have to look at is timeline. So early in my career, having such divergent interest was a was a barrier, was a hindrance. You know, when I applied for a job that wanted medical director of X, they wanted someone who's done five years of that specific thing, 
versus I had done five years of five different things. Fast forward, you know, 10 years when you are the vice president of X or the chief clinical person of X, all of those things that you've done differently early in your career are no longer a a negative. They're all value adds to the person you've become uh, when you now have larger responsibility over, over broader domains. So I, I don't have a perfect answer. There are those who do one thing and do it well, you know, five, 10 years and slowly add, you know, the breath. I, I started the, the, the funnel upside down in some ways. So talk about those barriers. I mean, how does someone like yourself, very well accomplished, especially in the educational space. You make a difference at each of the organizations that you have worked at and institutions that you've worked at. How does one overcome those barriers? Because it sounds like when you're on the job market, you are potentially applying to varied things. And some of us, I would put myself in that category, have a really hard time hitting send on that application when we don't meet 90, 95% of the criteria. So talk a little bit about that because I can imagine when you're applying, there are jobs out there that you say, hey, I can do that even if I don't meet 95% of the things they're looking for. What What is that confidence to hit send? Yeah, even if I don't meet 50% of the criteria that they're looking for, I, I click send. I think... Um, the first time I complained about something like this, I distinctly remember it was to my father in my first year of medical school. We were learning how to do interviews with patients, and I went and talked to someone who had diabetes, which I didn't know. He, he was on all these diabetes medications, but I hadn't learned pharmacology yet. So when my preceptor said, so how long has this patient had diabetes? I said, no, the patient doesn't have diabetes. And, and of course he did. So I told this story to my dad and, and he said, look, you're putting on a white coat, walk in there like you own the place. Like, I just distinctly remember him saying that phrase and now I've used it in different aspects of my life in that uh, if you have something of value, stand tall, be proud, and maybe the job doesn't really know what is it that they're looking for. Uh, maybe the person who created the position wasn't really sure what value that they need. Now, you can't be arrogant about these things. You, you face a ton of no's and rejection along the way. But plenty of the roles I've had were started from a conversation, a couple of text messages, and somebody needed something. And six conversations later, you have an executive role doing something slightly differently with that organization. So I'm going to go back to that answer that I said, you know, there's a, a couple of things to unpack. The other piece that you mentioned is this skill set or natural inclination. I'm not quite sure what it is. The ability to connect dots, not just in content, not just seeing, for example, something that you've learned or observed with your business lens on connecting to the medical space, to the hospital space, to the care delivery space, but also in connecting resources, connecting the right people to the problem at hand. And that skill, that or natural inclination is of incredible value these days, especially as we 
are thinking about the kinds of creative solutions that need to be implemented, that need to leverage content and expertise from different areas. So my question to you here is, how does one develop that? And how are you able to leverage it as you've now opened your own business? I think you have to remain curious. So even when I was a teenager, my parents would have dinner parties and there would be all these older people that we'd be expected to engage them and talk to them about our lives. And, you know, I'm 14 years old and somebody's 75, but just remaining curious in what they do, what they've done, how is that relevant? What does that mean today? And the other benefit is if you don't have the full depth of knowledge of their field, then you're looking to ask questions about the connections to your broader knowledge base, as opposed to asking much more granular, detailed questions about you know, the, the details of what they do. So over the years, uh, I've remained curious and kind of been asking. And, and it's the same now when, when I'm working with clients and, and advising startups and so on and so forth, trying to figure out what are their actual friction points And then who did I know that was really good at solving this and and try to connect the dots and drive value together? I love that notion and concept of staying curious because no matter what your discipline, no matter what your passion space, and quite frankly, probably no matter what your values in the world, remaining curious about people, about other kinds of content, about other kinds of discipline makes us lifelong learners, but as you've shared in your examples, can really add value to our success and our personal success and our career success and can be really fulfilling. I can imagine those deeper connected conversations really being kind of heartwarming and being really great memories from not only your childhood, but also each time you've done this throughout your adulthood. And I would say that curiosity is something that we often don't take the time to acknowledge. Our lives are often so busy that we neglect that curious side in the interest of pushing forward to the next thing on our to-do list. So for my listeners, I hope that that is a point that they absolutely take away from this conversation is that importance to be curious. I think the other thing I would add is not just be curious about their professional uh, lives or their business, but be curious about people uh, as human beings. I know right now everybody wants to draw a very black and white line between work and home, etc. But over the last decade, I've gotten to know probably hundreds of healthcare leaders and stakeholders and so on. I, I was on a call with one of them today that I hadn't seen in two years on a very important business call. But the first thing he said is asked about my kids, told me about how his kids are doing, etc. So it doesn't have to blur the lines of uh, inappropriate personal behavior, but having a sense of who individuals are, remembering about the rest of their journey authentically makes a difference, makes my, my life more enjoyable and makes you know uh, my business uh, more successful. So tell us a little bit about your business because your business is a little bit different in the models that you have at least shared in terms of your journey. So tell us a little bit about how Quintuple Aim 
came to be and what it does now. So there's been a lot of work on population health and value-based care, thinking about what is it that we value? It's improvement in cost, improvement in outcomes, physician and patient satisfaction, and now an additional interest in health equity. So the name Quintuple Aim is not something I made up. It's a, a concept that's been around for a couple of years. We started a small consulting firm called Quintuple Aim Solutions uh, about a year ago this time. And we're really trying to help accelerate the path to value-based care for both startups and existing risk-bearing entities. So without getting into too much jargon, if you can imagine if you're a small company that you've already delivered some value in improving blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, but you know doing all of these things impacts the total cost of care for the, the insurance company or the physician group, now you are confident in what you're doing and you want to get alignment of your payment model to the value that you're bringing. So we partner with these companies to decide what types of value-based contract makes sense for them, how to design it, how to pitch for it, how to take downside risk on, on their fees and get alignment between their pay for performance goals and what the other side needs, like the patients, the, the payers, and, and rest of society. Such an important space to be in. Again, I think it underscores how well you've been able to bring together your different passions, but also your different parts of your education that for some might feel disconnected, right? The population health from internal medicine, from an MBA, and all the things that you've done along the way. But this feels like you found a way to leverage all of those experiences and skills, at least from what you have to this date, together to make an impact. And it is very rare that people are able to start a business that brings all those passions together. And in the conversation you started with, you always knew you wanted to make that kind of large-scale difference. And this allows that to happen, but also in a flexible way. So can you talk about the lifestyle now of owning your own business as different from doing similar or different work in all the other contexts? Yeah, it's, uh, it's thrilling. It's anxiety provoking. It's, uh, you know, there are good days and, and, and bad days. I will say this sense of productivity and productivity goals are up to you. So early on, we had a, a lot of early success and I wasn't thinking about these things and I took on a lot of clients working for, you know, high hours, bringing in a ton of revenue. And since then we've slowed down a little bit. Some of our consulting arrangements have moved over to advising. I have more bandwidth. I was able to go on vacation for three and a half weeks with my family and, and only work a couple hours versus in the old days, I would have worked almost every day on vacation, feeling this need uh, to produce for my employer. So finding that balance is still a journey. I'm not sure I have. Uh, and then also, I think finding that inner peace with if there are low times or high times, things will eventually balance themselves out and not 
stressing yourself out or, or your family. I think that managing expectations and setting goals, but also knowing that there are quite a few factors maybe outside of your control, you know, whether or not a company that you want to work with who also wants to work with you has money in Q4 or in the fourth quarter of their year may not be in your control. However, being able to manage that in the plan of your business, but also emotionally, I think is a really important point from what you've said that I want to underscore. Yeah, there's a balance between always wanting to do something more and doing something that that matters. So I'm not sure I've de- developed the perfect balance yet, but there's a sense that if there is a low period, you you always want to do something, right? So I am a son of immigrants. We value hard work, uh, you know, the business models, you just wake up in the morning and you hustle and you, you know, roll up your sleeves and, and, and grind it out. So there are times that we're building out the brand and adding people on LinkedIn and so on. There are times you're circling back to clients. And then there are times I take dozens of low yield phone calls from other people who need our help, but they're too early in their journey to be a business partner per se. Uh, so we think about it as, you know, you want to provide a lot of value for free to stakeholders. And then eventually over the next few years, all of the good things you put out in the world will, will come back around. And that's a blessing when you have excess bandwidth. You know, when you're working 80 hours a week, even if a friend or colleague needs an opinion on a document or something, you just don't have the bandwidth to uh, help them out and provide some, some input because it's cutting into your family time. The opportunity cost is not seeing your kids. When you do have more bandwidth, there's more opportunity to extend your your knowledge and, and you provide some good to others. So again, congratulations on hitting that one-year milestone of Quintuple Aim Solutions. So thank you for having me on and uh, uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Join me in the Becoming My Stronger Me Facebook group as we talk about questions and reflections from this episode, or send me a message on Instagram at StrongerMe, sharing your story, your questions, your reflections. I'd love to hear from you. Let's learn from each other and build a supportive community so that you can become your stronger you.